You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue through our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. While you're on your way there, as you will remember, we have defined supremacy as that thing or person who, um, in your heart or in your mind, surpasses everything else in status, in power, and in authority. And we're going to see here that Jesus Christ reigns supreme. And we're going to see it in three areas in verses 15 through 23. He reigns supreme over his creation. He reigns supreme over the church. He reigns supreme over you and I. We're going to take that one week at a time. We're going to find in verses 15 through 17 today, the title of our message, Supreme Over Creation. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, today we come before you, the sovereign king of the universe. Through your son, all things live, move, have their being, and are held together. God, I would imagine that there are some of us today, this morning, who have come here and we feel like life is falling apart. God, would you fix our eyes on the sovereign king of creation and remind us that our king still sits on the throne. Nothing is out of control because he is ruling supremely. pray in Jesus' name, amen. The story is told uh, many years ago of a young boy who was uh, sitting in Sunday school class, and his teacher was teaching on uh, the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And as he was sitting there listening uh, to his teacher talk about the imminent return of Jesus, that Jesus could come back at any moment, he raised his hand, and he asked a very simple yet profound question. Teacher, if Jesus were to come back today would he understand how to use a computer? That was a very simple question, but a very profound question. Because I think this young man understood that uh, the world that Jesus existed in, in Palestine, where they walked around on dirt roads and sandals with long flowing robes, was very different from the world that we live in today. A A world filled with smartphones and where we can clone sheep and we have designer babies. The world is a very different place now. But not just that, that we live in a world filled with terrorist bombings, serial killers, drive-by shootings, church burnings, workplace massacres. We live in a broken world filled with floods and tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, and droughts. He was asking a very important question and recognize that the world of then is very different from the world of today. But I think there was also a hidden fear in this young man's question that would Jesus, if he were to return today, be lost or 
potentially overwhelmed by the world, the modern age in which we live? Is he really supreme over it all? And that today is exactly what Paul wants to address here in this text. Last week, we saw in verses 13 and 14 that Jesus has rescued us out of the so-called concentration camp of sin and death and delivered us into a new way of life, a new kingdom, the kingdom of light. But in so doing, we recognize that though we are citizens of this new kingdom, the kingdom is not fully realized. The land has not yet come. So right now, we are citizens waiting for an inheritance in a land that is yet to come. So what about all of this stuff in between? What about life in between the moment we're saved and the moment we inherit the land and eternal eternal life? What about the right here, right now? Because if you're anything like me and you look around the world and you watch the news and you see the headlines, you begin to realize that we live in a very chaotic, dark, dangerous world. Can I get an amen? And the question becomes, does Christ really reign supreme over it all? So what I want to do today is answer that question directly from the text and try to draw some direct applications to life. I think there are a lot of us here in this room who are probably asking that question and don't even realize we're asking. So the first point is this, Christ reigns over his creation. It's very simple. In verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word here in the text, he is the image, is where we get the word icon. It's where we get the understanding of a picture. And Paul is saying this because he understands that God is spirit. How do you have a relationship with someone that you can't see? Well, God gives us pictures. And throughout history, God has given us images of himself so that we can understand, in a sense, who God is. And though most of these pictures throughout history that God has given to us, we see them through a fog. We do not always see God clearly. We recognize all the way in the back, in the beginning of creation, God created man in his own image. That he placed us here as imagers of who God is. That creation can look at us and get a sense of who God is when they look at us. Throughout history as well, God has given us what are called theophanies. Theophanies are God appearing in some physical form throughout history to give us a glimpse of who he is. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared and walked with them in the fiery furnace, revealing to us that the God we worship doesn't always save us from the fire, but will always walk with us through it. You see, throughout history, God has given us images, given us pictures of who he is so that we know and understand who he is. But here in the text, it tells us that God has given us the image, the picture of the icon of Jesus Christ. That is that he has removed the fog and given us clarity to the foggy notions of an immortal and visible God who lives an inapproachable life. When Jesus Christ was incarnate, when he stepped out of his throne room in heaven and became a human being and wrapped himself in humanity, he made the invisible God, visible to our human eyes. So that if we wanted to know who God was, we didn't have to be part of some elite group of enlightened, 
spiritual Gnostics in the days of Colossae who were the few who knew who God really was. We didn't have to be a part of that. Today, you don't have to be a scientific genius to figure out who God is and what he looks like. All you have to do if you want to know exactly, precisely, with clarity who God is and what he's done, where do we look? To Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full embodiment of who God is and what he has done. Now, some of us might say, well, this really feels like top shelf seminary level theology. Um, Good to know, essential for the faith, amen? Amen? But impractical to everyday life. Like, how does this really help me out? Well, Tim Keller, I think, rightly said this. How we think about God, how we picture him in our minds, in our hearts, how we image or imagine him in our minds is the most powerful and influential thing in your life. That how you image and how you imagine God in your mind and in your heart has massive power over your life for good or for ill. I remember hearing a story of a man who uh, grew up in the Bronx and um, he'd grown up in a Christian home and he had grown up around the church for many, many years. Uh, But he said he resisted Christ for the longest time because the only picture that he ever saw of Jesus was that picture that you usually see around the city, the the kind of the milk toast, curly-haired, long flowing robes, hand over his heart, two fingers up, wouldn't hurt a fly, Jesus. You ever seen that? You know what I'm talking about? And you know what he said? He said, for the longest time, I could not give my life to Christ because when I looked at that picture, I thought there's a guy who wouldn't last two minutes in my neighborhood. That image had a massively powerful impact on how he related with God. You see, it was a picture of love, but it wasn't a picture of strength. And that's why he recoiled from that picture of Jesus. Because he didn't really care much about a a God who loved. He wanted a God that was strong. And I think that's why in the second commandment, if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, the second commandment says, thou shall have no what? Do you remember? No graven or carved images. No, why not? I mean, a golden calf in the Old Testament gave us a picture of a God who was strong and powerful and capable, but it doesn't give us a picture of a God who's pure and holy and righteous. You see, the reality is that man-made images have a tendency to conceal more about God than they do reveal about God. And that is why we have to be careful that when we imagine God, we are not confining God to the limits of our imagination, but rather allowing the scriptures to craft in our imagination the limitless, powerful, immutable, God-only wise who is existing in inapproachable light. The word has to craft our imagination. Our imagination cannot craft our understanding of who God is. But make no mistake about it, the way you think about your God impacts every decision, every feeling that you have in your life. And Keller went on to say, and I thought this was really helpful, that any crisis in life is typically the result of a limited 
or an accurate view, picture, image of who God is. If you think about it, when you experience anxiety, not every moment of anxiety, but oftentimes when we experience anxiety, it's the result of our fear of something in the future. Amen? Are you with me? We're afraid of something that's going to happen in the future that we cannot control and we're afraid is going to what? Help or hurt? You don't have anxiety or panic attacks over things that are going to help you, but hurt you. And so what Keller says is we have struggled to imagine in our minds God's description of himself in the scriptures, that we have not imaged a God in our minds and in our hearts that is already there in the future, that is already crafting out the details of our future and is already there waiting for you to catch up with him and is organizing and orchestrating all of the events that we're terrified of for his glory and our good. Does that make sense? When you get angry, you experience injustice and your heart grows bitter, maybe toward a friend or family member or foe. That we have struggled to imagine a God in our minds and our hearts that sees it all, that has a record that cannot be erased and one day will hold all accountable for injustice. We have not imagined that. And so in our anger, we grow bitter and frustrated and we grow in our anger toward a person because we haven't imaged in our God a God of justice. He goes on to say, in our lust, when we image in our mind and in our hearts a fantasy with another person and we embrace that and we engage in that, we do that because we have not imaged in our mind a picture of a holy God who is set apart, a God of fire and flame, who is the father of all those dear children that we objectify and use for our greedy ends. Do you see how this impacts everything? And that's why Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, No Graven Images, she said, when she was writing about a missionary lady who Um, at the end of her life, had pretty much lost everything. It says in the book that her whole life's work was going down the drain. At the end of the novel, when all had gone bad, everything had gone wrong, and all she thought God was going to do to help her hadn't happened, she looked down and said this, Now in the clear light of day, I see that if God was merely my assistant, that he had failed See, she had an image in her mind of who God was, that God was merely his assistant or her assistant, and and therefore an assistant just takes notes of what you want and how you want things done and when you want things done, and an assistant's job is just simply to make it happen. And if that's all that God is, and it doesn't go the way you want, then of course, what are we going to be with God? Frustrated and angry. But she goes on. If God was merely my assistant then I would conclude that he had betrayed me. But if on the other hand, he was God, sovereign over creation, 
then he had freed me. I could find that I no longer could label this activity as useless and that activity as uh, useful because now the work as well as the labeling belongs to God. How we imagine God in our minds and in our hearts has massive ramifications for everything in life. And that is why Paul writes here in this text, he is the image of the invisible God. If we are going to make it through the difficulties and the struggles and the challenges of this life with full confidence and trust in God who is revealed in Scripture, then we have to sear and burn in our minds the image of Jesus Christ as revealed from the Scriptures. How do we do that? We spend time with Christ right here in his word, day in and day out, pouring into the gospels, reading about the life of Jesus, who was the image of the invisible God, who gives us access and an entry point into knowing exactly who our God is. And notice here in the text, he's not just the image of the invisible God, but the firstborn over all creation. This is not just simply a reference to birth order, Actually, it has nothing to do with birth order, but rather status. That Paul is saying here, Christ outranks all things in creation because he is equal to the Father. Christ outranks your checkbook. Christ outranks your bank account. Christ outranks your boss who's been breathing down your neck. Christ outranks your dreams and aspirations in this life. Church, Christ outranks your calendar. And what we choose to do with our weekends, Christ outranks it all, and he is in charge of it all. And if Christ is to reign over all creation, then he must reign over every fear, every anxious thought, every lustful thought, every bitter thought, every choice that we make on our calendar. He must reign over it all. And if he doesn't, then we have crafted in our mind an image of God that is not the God of the Bible. Are we tracking? It's making sense. Point number two is not only creation uh, sovereign over all creation, but creation exists by, through, and for Jesus Christ. In verse 16, it says this, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Why does Jesus Christ have the right to reign supreme over every detail of your life? Every thought, every word, every deed, every choice that you make when you are in traffic and that guy cuts you off and you want to give him a friendly gesture, why does Christ reign supreme over all of it? Because he made it all. All of creation exists by him, through him, and for him. And therefore, he is the sovereign king of it all. Now, as we look here in the text in verse 16, it says, for all things are made by him. And this is a statement of agency. That is, that if if God the Father is the carpenter, Jesus Christ is the hammer, 
And that means that all of creation, you and I have been intricately designed with intentionality by a God who has made us in his image and his likeness. And God doesn't waste his work. Amen? Secondly, uh, through him, uh, toward the end of the verse, all things were created through him. Uh, That is that all things, all of creation is contained within Christ. Now, this is maybe a little bit heady, a little bit deep, but if you think about it, all creation exists through Christ, all of it, from this edge of the galaxy to this, the universe, to this edge of the universe, all of it has been made through Christ and is contained within Christ, and therefore, from this edge of the universe to this edge of the universe, Christ is there, ruling and reigning everywhere in between. That's why we say Christ is omnipresent. There's nowhere that Christ is not. He is all places at all times and therefore reigning over all things everywhere equally. And might I add, doing it with his, his feet kicked up on the couch. It's not like Jesus is in heaven trying to hold it all together with all of his might, just hoping that it's not all going to fly apart. Jesus is up in heaven, confidently ruling and reigning through the power of his word and nothing more. That is your God. And notice what else it says here. Created by him, through him, and for him. That is a statement of purpose. That is that all of creation, all rulers, all forces, seen and unseen, benevolent and evil, exist for the purposes of Jesus Christ. That is, no matter what goes on in our election and how things end out, and there's a lot of anxiety about that right now in our culture, it all exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. Every war that's ever been fought ultimately Evil for the glory of Jesus Christ. Every difficult moment of life, ultimately, for the glory of Jesus Christ. All of creation is by him, through him, and ultimately for him. Here's why that's important. If Christ reigns supreme over his creation because he made it, then it's very important that we have a proper understanding of creation. Amen? Because a wrong understanding of creation is going to lead us to a wrong view of sin, self, and salvation. If we don't surrender ourselves, our minds, and our understanding of how this world works to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and instead we try to take elements of the Bible and spirituality and we try to mix that with evolution and, and, and science and, and modern philosophy and we try to somehow merge them together. Have you ever met the guy that does that? We're a quiet bunch today. Have you ever met the guy that does that? You know them, they're out there. They're trying to, to like reconcile it all together because they're just not quite confident or sure that the Bible's fully reliable and is, is the creation account, can we really rely upon that? Is that accurate or is that just kind of poetry and it's a beautiful way to express it? 
If we don't come to grips with this, and we try to merge humanistic, godless thinking and philosophy with the scriptures, it's ultimately going to lead us to a God the Bible doesn't even describe, sin, or our understanding of sin in a different way than the Bible describes, and ourselves. Are we tracking? You know, for the past 300 years, I think um, we have been discovering, kind of like toddlers going off to preschool, we've got a rude awakening that we're not the center of the universe. Um, we've discovered that the earth is not the center of the universe. It used to be, before the days of Galileo came up with modern astro- uh, astro- astronomy, uh, that we kind of thought like we were the center of everything, that everything rotated around us, and that's why you saw everything spin in the skies, because it all revolved around us. But throughout the past several hundred years, we've been discovering that we aren't the center of the universe, and in fact, we're this tiny blue dot in a minor solar system on the outskirts of a modest galaxy. Carl Sagan put it, we're on a small stage in a vast cosmic arena. In fact, Voyager 1 was sent out in 1977. It traveled 4 billion miles. And in 1990, as it was driving out into the ocean of blackness in space, it turned around and took a picture through one of the rays of the sun. And we got this. You see that tiny little blue dot? That's us. That's Earth, four billion miles away. Everything that's ever happened, every dream you've ever had, every relationship that you've ever encountered, every war that's ever been thought, every theology that's ever been crafted, every person that's ever lived and died has all existed on that tiny little dot. And the Voyager, when it took this picture, had just barely passed Neptune, hadn't even escaped our solar system. And it begs the question, why would God care What happens on this tiny little planet? Why would God give a thought to what's going on on this tiny little planet, specks of dust and an ocean of nothingness? Why would God care? Science has tried to ask these kinds of deep philosophical questions for years. But here's the problem with science. Can I just kind of shoot straight? about science? I know you're never supposed to do this because like science is the God of our age. So never attack science, never go after science. And I've got a couple of scientists here in the room, and so I checked some of my facts just to make sure I was right. See some thoughts. Here's the thing about science. Science is really good at observing, describing, and analyzing what's already there. Are we agreed? But it's terrible at giving answers to the questions of why. C.S. Lewis put it like this, in the whole of history of the universe, the laws of nature have never produced a single event, ever. Science can't make something happen. That's not the purpose of science. It's just to observe and quantify it, measure it, and figure out what it is, but it can't tell you why it's there. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, a billiard ball hitting another follows the laws of physics, but those laws Do not set that ball in motion. Somebody with a cue did. Right, Larry? Robert Jastrow, who was an agnostic astronomer many years ago, he confessed that the scientific search to know everything had ultimately come to a dead end. He put it like this. As we were scaling the mountains of ignorance and finally reached the highest peak, 
the beginning of time, how it all began, why we're here, who started it all. He summarized and concluded by saying this, as I pulled myself over the final rock, I greeted to that ultimate question, I was greeted by a band of theologians who had been sitting there for centuries. He discovered what we have known for thousands and thousands of years, why we are here, that we are here by him, we are here through him, and we are here for him. Isn't that awesome? You exist by Christ. You are not an accident of some cosmic chemistry lab that went awry. You have been crafted by the imago die. You are crafted, you are designed, you have been chiseled and hammered into the image of God by a loving creator who cares about you, has a purpose and a plan for your life. You you do not create your own sense of purpose or reason for being in this life, but you discover your purpose and reason for being in this life when you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. You were created by him. You were created through him. That is that every, every, say it with me, event of your life is not the result of random chance and chaos. You are not the byproduct of stardust colliding together, exploding, and somehow you uh, evolving out of some primordial ooze and somehow after every mathematical impossibility has occurred, here you are. Because if that's true, everything good and everything bad in your life is pure and total and utter accident and happenstance. There's no design, there's no purpose, there's no reason behind it. And therefore, if you really believe that you're simply the byproduct of stardust, there's no incentive for you to be kind, to be loving, to be genuine, to be sincere, to be helpful. No motivation. Ultimately. But that's not how it works. You are not the result of a chaotic accident. Everything has been created through him. And therefore, everything in your life that happens to you in your day-to-day comes from him, either from his hand or has passed through his hand for ill or good in your life. And finally, you have been created for him. Can I get the handheld, please? I don't know what's going on here. But you have been created for him. You exist for Jesus Christ. You exist for his glory. You do not exist for you to actualize yourself and be your best best version of you. And I'm going to say that again. You don't exist to become the best version of yourself. You don't. And your pursuit of the best version of yourself will ultimately be fleeting, dissatisfying, and unfulfilling. Ultimately, because the best version of yourself is sinful, broken, and corrupt. 
and that's all the best you will ever be by yourself. The best version of you is the version that dies and by faith embraces Jesus Christ and allows Jesus Christ to live through him. For we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us and now lives through us. You exist for Christ, which means you will never be happy, you will never be satisfied, you will never be fulfilled until you surrender to that fact. Teens, young adults, hear me on this. I have watched my friends and family who have graduated from Christian college. They were taught all these truths and they went out and they pursued their best life now and ultimately it led to misery, struggle, and frustration. That is not how it works. Surrendering yourself to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in every area of your life is the only thing that will give you true satisfaction and joy in this life. Without Christ, every accomplishment will be empty Every relationship will be unfulfilling. Every possession will ultimately never satisfy you until it is surrendered to the supremacy of Christ. Creation exists by him, through him, and finally for him. Creation holds together in Christ. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold... Wait a minute. This... This is the holy grail of science right here. Back in the 1900s, when, when Einstein was coming out with his, um, uh, his theory either on gravity or relatively, and I'm not exactly sure which one it was, um, I had to do some research on this, but he was looking for uh, a, unify, a, a unifying principle in the universe. Something that would, let me get this straight, a simple set of laws that would explain every complex detail in the universe. He said it like this, I want to know how God created this world. I want to know the mind of God. He was trying to figure out how does it all hold together? When you look out there, scientists still can't explain why it doesn't all just fly apart. We, can't, we still can't figure out in all of our knowledge, all of our understanding, all of our uh, uh, Google searches, we still can't figure out why it doesn't just explode in an instant, back at the text, he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. He is what Paul calls the divine glue of the universe. That is, that God didn't simply start things off and then withdraw from his creation, but Christ continues to sustain the entire universe by the power of his word. That's how it all holds together. I remember when my dad was growing up, my dad told me that um, they grew up on beagles. They were a dog family. That's why I love dogs. Can't stand cats, even though I grew up with cats. We had three cats, so there you go. I'm a total hypocrite when it comes to cats. (laughs) Anyway, um, but they had this beagle, and he said, this beagle was so obedient, you could draw a circle around the beagle with your finger, an imaginary circle, and that beagle would never leave the circle until it was told otherwise. It stayed put. Jesus Christ has 
drawn his circle around our universe, and he says, stay put. Don't move. He holds it all together by the power of his word. And this is the singular thing that agnostic, atheistic philosophers and scientists struggle with most. David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher from the 1800s who was a committed atheist, He said that the one thing that he could not get past in his understanding of the universe was the order and intentionality of everything he saw. He said, I look out here and I see the order and the design of it, which tells me I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but I refuse to believe that he does. Francis Crick, the man who developed uh, the theory of the DNA double helix strand, he put it like this, biologists have to constantly remind ourselves that what we see in God's creation, he didn't say God's creation, but in creation, is not designed, but rather evolved. Here's an evolutionary biologist who has to remind himself because he sees so much order and structure in everything that he looks at He has to remind himself that it wasn't designed by a creator, that it's rather evolved, constantly telling ourselves that. See, what Paul tells us here in this text is this. Jesus made it. He sustains it. He holds it all together. The universe is not self-existent. The big bang didn't just bang, and here we are. We are not self-sufficient. We are dependent on our creator. Which means, if the universe in which we live is not self-sufficient, that means if the universe in which we live is literally held together by the word of his power, this means if the universe itself in which you and I live is held together by the authority of Jesus Christ, and that the very breath that you and I breathe is a gift from God himself, Just breathe in for a second. That right there was a gift from the God that made you. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5 says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. If it's all held together by a sovereign God, Why on earth would we not surrender every detail of our lives to him right now? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, the king, the prince of preachers, said this, every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, you will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or Satan. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be masters, hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him, 
It is heaven to serve Christ. If Christ is supreme over creation, is he supreme over you? Is he supreme over your wallet and how you'll spend your money this week? Is he supreme over your calendar and how you'll spend your time this week? Is he supreme over your Sunday and whether you go to Bedside Baptist or actually get up and go to church? Is he supreme over your relationships and who you spend time with? Is he supreme over your media consumption and what you see with your eyes? Is he supreme with your attitude and how you speak and treat other people? Is he supreme over your emotions and how you feel? Is he supreme over your career and what you choose to do for work? Is he your reason for being? Father, until we reckon with this truth that we will ultimately serve someone or something, we will never find the freedom that we seek and the joy that we desire. Father, help us to surrender ourselves to the supremacy of Jesus Christ because all of creation belongs to him and yet he still cares for us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.